pull up a chair and join us at the Energy Roundtable. Welcome to the Energy Roundtable. Uh, on this week, uh, Bill and I debate, discuss, decide, solve all the world's problems. I'm fresh off of the IDEA 2022 annual conference, the International District Energy Association. So. Uh, fresh off of some good conversations about the uh, future of energy and utilities. And uh, Bill, how are you? Welcome to the show. I am doing well. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Likewise. Let's jump right into the article. Uh, I, we, we both have a couple uh, news articles, I think. Do you have some news articles, Bill? I do. Would you like me to go first? What? Yeah, why don't you go first? Right on. Sure. Okay. Um, the first one is uh, an article from the BBC. It's uh, titled, Can Gravity Batteries Solve Our Energy Storage Problems? So Matt had discussed using gravity to energy before uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, where it makes sense. Um, And in that case, it was to make more efficient use of uh, battery-operated trucks. But that was a very specific application. So this uh, this article is uh, is about using uh, gravity for energy storage. And uh, the major alternatives uh, to this would be uh, lithium ion batteries and hydrogen, as you know. And so the, the basic premise here, uh, of course, is that you, you lift up some mass and you convert green energy, hopefully, to potential energy and then uh, when it's available. And then you let the mass come down again, you convert back to electricity when it's needed. So most of the high capacity storage on the planet is already stored this way in, in uh, via pumped hydro. In, in that case, you have surplus power. You use it to pump water into a reservoir at some elevation. And then when you need the power, you open up a gate. The water flows downhill through a generator. But that specific type of storage, is it's just not available everywhere. It's, uh, it's it basically you need uh, specific geographical requirements. You know, I'm talking about elevation and you need a whole lot of water. Um, so these projects can be prohibitively expensive on top of that. But this isn't the only technology that makes use of gravity. And this is what this article is specifically about. So they focus on a, okay. a company called, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I just, yeah, this is great. I love it. Yeah, so th- this is, uh, they focus on a company called uh, Gravit, <laughs> let's see if I get this right, Gavit, Gravitricity. There you go, gravity and electricity out, out of Scotland. Uh, their prototype was a 49-foot steel tower uh, it suspends a 50 metric ton iron weight and then, you know, electric motors pull it up and then you lower it and the generators produce electricity. Cool. Now, that, that particular one was um, was considered a, a small scale pilot, uh, could produce about 250 kilowatts of instantaneous power. They're focused for a full scale application. They're They're basically focusing on existing infrastructure that could be converted to this use. And to them, the most obvious uh, one is uh, abandoned mines. Of course, right. Right. Cool. So, so the mines they're looking at are mostly old coal mines, um, which is which is neat because it has the additional PR component to it. You know, because you're transitioning from old to the new, and in some cases, you can actually re- revi- revitalize a community that was had, was previously centered around coal mining. So you're giving people from the fossil fuel industry new jobs, essentially. That's um, cool. That's yeah, it's, cool. it's really it's really neat. Um, but taking over an abandoned mine, you know, I, I'm sure you know about this. And there's a lot of issues with that. And uh, they also, this company is looking at digging their own shafts as well. There's okay. another company that they looked at called Energy Vault. And uh, they exclusively use towers. 
Um, they built a prototype. It's 20 stories tall. Um, they have a whole bunch of investment money now, and they're they're going commercial uh, allegedly with a, a modular building that stores thousands of of weights on a on this trolley system. And the, the article didn't have uh, specific sizes and storage capacities in that, but they mentioned that the the smaller installations would be dozens of acres in area, <laughs> just to get a, a sense. Um, okay, so for this technology, a major advantage here for this type of storage is that you can deliver your maximum power basically instantly, go from zero right. to right. Right, okay. But the alternative, uh, an alternative is lithium ion batteries, which can also do that, essentially. So, so how do these technologies compare otherwise? Well, the overall efficiencies are similar, apparently. And, um, and lithium cells have become cheaper recently. Um, but this article does point to a 2016 study that claims that the overall lifetime costs of the lithium ion batteries is, is roughly double that of their mechanical counterparts. So Wow, double, it, okay. Double, yeah. And, and th what they're talking about specifically is the repairability of the mechanical parts because it's easy, it's inexpensive uh, when they inevitably do break down. And that's just not true for the electrochemical versions in there because they're you know their storage capacity degrades over time now and and also with the batteries there's there's uh things to other things to consider like human rights abuses uh, abuses with uh cobalt mining as well as environmental damage and all that all that needs to be considered but for, for me personally i just i like the simplicity of this idea and i remember the first time i saw this was the um I can't remember what they called it. But it was like something sled. I can't remember, but but it was oh, basically a, a, yeah, it was a, it was a track like a train, almost like a train track on on a hill, and they had a big concrete slab that they just moved up and down, essentially. Hmm. You, you put the power in, you move it up with an electric motor, and let it come back down. So that was that was a long time ago, and and uh, this is this is where we've come to now. So anyway, I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah, that's great. It's you know. It's proof proof positive that you know grade six physics is still important, right? Like you know converting converting uh, one form of energy into another in in, the, in this case potential energy, right? Like that was yep. so basic and fundamental, and here we are, we've come back. Uh, to me, it's, there's an there's a business opportunity to fuse wind turbines and their their tall towers that are essentially hollow. Um, and why couldn't we put these up and down, uh, you know, weight systems? I, I don't know how that would imp impact the uh, the forces on those towers. But to me, you've, you've already got these vertical shafts all throughout, you know, uh, the world. Let's just put some weights in it. And especially because you can, when it's windy, you can ratchet up the rates, uh, the weights rather. And then when it's not, you can drop the weights and uh, and dispatch. Yeah, I, I like that because you're, you're building you're building the structure anyway. I mean, you could also right. argue that you're you're also you could also argue that you're building in a place where you can build towers, right? So you could, regardless of if, if it's actually part of the uh, wind turbine or not, it, you, it, it could it could be beside it. I think it's probably more efficient to put it right, right in. But but there's probably something about turbine towers I'm missing. Right. Um, so. That, that, is, that is something that this company also argues. They, they specifically talked about wind farms and just said, look, you know that if you can build a wind farm there, you can, you can build this. It's not like right. it's not it's it's definitely not like the companies that have to build shafts. Right. So they, they were right. They were right. Comp yeah. Competition on that one. So cool. Well, um, you had a storage article. I have a storage article. Uh, okay. Mine is uh, mine is from Euronews.com. The uh, the title is uh, New Energy Dome, so in quotes, Energy Dome Battery Uses CO2 to Store Wind and Solar Power. So it's also a storage technology, and 
So the, the way it works is it's, it's a closed loop system and they have this uh, low pressure storage dome of, of, of carbon dioxide. So they get kind of commercial CO2, which is interesting. They're using CO2 as a way to uh, reduce CO2 by storing renewable energy. Uh, but basically what it, what it is, is it's compressed and uh, into a liquid. It's compressed and cooled into a liquid. Uh, for storage as CO2, and then the the heat of that compression is stored in energy storage. And so what happens on when they have surplus electricity, they take that dome full of CO2 and they compress it into a liquid CO2, and then uh, they, they go from that goes from a motor to a generator when they need to dispatch it, and they they uh, you know allow that liquid CO2 through a heater to to be vaporized, and that pressure of, of vaporization then will drive the uh, the generator uh, or the you know the compressor backwards, and and then the generator so you can dispatch it. And um, so yeah, they're looking at a 20 megawatt, 200 megawatt hour. Um, you know, kind of that's their initial offering, and. What's exciting here is they they can do it for about two hundred dollars per kilowatt hour, which I guess is half the price of lithium ion right now. Um, so and and for us, you know, as molecules folks at PEM, um, you know, it's pretty exciting because it's less of a you know a electron-based system and more of a, a thermodynamic um, you know a mechanical system. So the company's out of Sardinia, uh, which is a small island in the Mediterranean. Uh, so that's kind of unique as well to have a technology company uh, come out of there. But yeah, it'd be interesting to watch that and and see if uh, if we can't uh, make a go. It's a good size, 20 megawatts and 10 hours of storage, um, and using uh, using a gas that is uh, readily available. You go. You, why don't you do your next article? Yeah, sure, sure. I'll do I'll do that. So um, my next one was from CNN, and. It was titled Energy Experts Sound Alarm About U.S. Electric Grid, Not Designed to Withstand the Impacts of Climate Change. I thought this was a pretty interesting article. So so basically, and we're already hearing a lot of, about this, um, but the current summer and, and the power requirements thereof, have, you know, they've been in the news a lot lately. This one's interesting because it, it focuses on the future and how this is uh, accelerating, an accelerating problem that could get away from us if we, you know, if we want to bury our heads in the in the sand. So in, in brief, what, it, what it's talking about is um, the current forecast is for a hotter than normal summer upcoming. And there are many experts that are sounding an alarm that the U.S. could have a, a, a power shortage. Now, um, the, ar- wow. the article, yeah, the, the article, it, it gets worse. Um, the, the article references uh, um, a summer readiness report from MISO, that's Mid-Continent uh, Independent System Operator, Operator. Which, yep. yeah, which I believe is from 15 different states in Manitoba. Um, then, it, anyway, the report includes the line, uh, quote, insufficient firm resources to cover summer peak forecasts, ominous. Um, and But this, here's the kicker. So th- this report uses historical data it also does use the latest NOAA projections uh, for the summer, though. But this is exactly what some experts are pointing to as a problem. We keep using historical data instead of climate models that include extreme weather events at a frequency mm-hmm. right, that we haven't seen before. So the claim is that the grid operators are using this historical data on purpose because, you know, a conservative approach um, defends against the situation where money is spent 
needlessly for an event that doesn't actually transpire, which I can understand. Um, we've already had six power plants go offline in Texas in May uh, from an early heat wave. And okay. back then, right. And the back back then, the, the response from ERCOT in Texas was that the uh, the state's power grid is prepared for the summer. That's what they said. They they have sufficient power for normal Shots normal up. conditions. Shots up, we're ready, right? Right. <laughs> conditions based on normal conditions based on averaging the temperatures from 2004 to 2020. So this gives us another example of the phenomenon that the article is trying to shed light on. Mm. So um, going to California, a report from California grid operators. It's also referenced in the article and they're using historical data as well. And they, they specifically point out in that one that the climate change model data is not included. And um, you know, and, and as I said, the, the NOAA forecasts, summer forecasts are for um, numbers that are above average temperatures in every county in the country. Whoa. So ig ignoring even that data seems bad. Uh, wow. the, rest of the, the rest of the article talks about uh, what local municipalities are, are doing as backup plans, which are, you know, basically plans for various microgrids across the, the U.S., but I mean, fundamentally, this is all a risk benefit analysis, obviously. And I would say it's pretty uncontroversial to say that the data, you know, the science is there to inform our decisions, not make them for us. So ignoring climate change models or even the forecast for the next few months, it just seems like a poor strategy. Yeah. So anyway, that's it, that's, that's a, such an interesting and I'm sure I should have thought of it, but I, I haven't. And I, I mean, we're as guilty, you know, when we put together a specification, often we look at you know, historical ambience. Well, you right. know, are we, are we potentially over designing on the low side of, of, of the curve because we're looking at, you know, minus whatever temperatures that don't happen anymore. Right. So, uh, but, but I mean, that's, that's less consequential, you know, as opposed to what you're talking about. If, if we, you know, and we've already done a lot of build out of infrastructure to try to, you know, get ready for, for what we need. And if, if now we're saying we need that much more, um, this goes back to the discussion I had this week about wires versus, you know, pipes in the ground, right? Um, you know, wires is only one part of the solution. And uh, are there other ways we can get, you know, heating and cooling and leverage the, the gas infrastructure as well, right? So um, fascinating. We have to be modeling not on historical norms, but on where we know the, the climate change is taking us. Love it. Great, great insight. Thank you. My, my second article uh, is from uh, CTV News, for, so for the Calgary uh, location, so that's a Canadian news uh, network. And uh, the, the, title, the, the title of the article, and I, I'd like to propose a, an alternative title, but the title is UK-style windfall tax, um, an, acceptable idea, an unacceptable idea, says the Alberta Energy Minister. Uh, my alternative is Robin Hood needs the alternative title for me is Robin Hood should stay in Nottingham Forest. Um, because what the article is going on to say is, and I guess the, the UK has proposed this windfall tax of 25% on the profits of oil and gas companies. Uh, awesome. And the intent is to raise funds for cash payments to help the British citizens. So uh, for those who are not familiar with Robin Hood's story, his kind of um, mission in life was to steal from the rich and give to the poor, and, and so in some ways that's what the windfall tax is intended to doing here. And I'm, you know, I, there's there's an aspect of society that I think that we need to be doing some of that. Um, but but 
the 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 news out of Alberta, uh, the energy minister is saying essentially saying this to the feds in in Ottawa, you better not be doing this. Um, and I think I don't know a lot about British politics and UK politics, but certainly in he, and what the article goes on to say is that you know you you do this in Canada where a decision is made in the east to do this, you would alienate you know your Canadians uh, in the west, and so. You know, this is a, I mean, this is all political. There's no real, you know, data or anything, but, it, but it's a, a real issue of our, our day and age. You know, these oil companies in the West are making rapacious profits and they're buying back shares and then, do, you know, increasing dividends and all that stuff. Um, and, and the question is, you know, do we need to have a windfall? How, how are we? You know, the reality is they're making all this money and we're paying two plus dollars a liter at the pump, right? So, um, yeah, it, it, obviously, the, I mean, obviously, the, the Minister of Energy in, in Alberta has to take this stance, of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what is the right stance? I, I, I'm glad I don't have to make the decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it, that's a funny one, eh? Because um, like even using the, the word windfall seems problematic. It seems like you're poisoning the well, right? Right. Um, right. Because as you say, we got to this point of the, these companies making this money because of circumstances that we we fed into with mm-hmm. politics and, and, and whatever and choices that we've made. And then to sort of uh, call it a windfall after the fact. I don't know. It, it sounds a little off. But, well, but then, I heard. Yeah, go ahead. I heard. Uh, oh, I was in when I was in Europe recently, I was listening to the, you know, the, you, you go to a, a non-English speaking country and they always have like at least one, you know, BBC News or CNN International, some some English speaking TV channel. And the, the one of the shows was interviewing the the, the uh, individual from from BP and uh, you know they were they were pushing back on this too saying listen we're we're going to reinvest all these funds and we're going to you know the, the, it's really a question of who's who is who's more effective is is the government more effective in terms of redistribution of wealth or are the corporations um, and uh, probably the social scientists would say that both of them are very inefficient at redistributing wealth um, that is the right but, answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, speaking of uh, robust debates, uh, let's uh, con- let's transition to our face-off part of the roundtable. We'll invite our uh, our never boring producer, Mr. Mark Charbonneau. Welcome, Mark. Hey, how are you guys? We're great. great. Never boring. By the way, I so, disagree so this, with you on that. Sorry. What's that? Sorry. I said never boring. I think my wife might disagree with you. On oh, that. oh, okay. <laughs> well, she's also very uh, very interesting and quite a cool person. So she is. Um, uh, by the way, people uh, all week were raving about your uh, video production quality, and uh, you, you, we did some presentations at a conference this week, and Mark did all the recording. So, um, fantastic! I don't know. I th- I think you had for those who are watching this or listening, I think you had to be a registrant of the IDEA conference to actually see it. But if you send us an an email, Matt at cemng.ca, we uh, we may be able to hook you up. So, anyways, Mark, what's our face-off topic today? Student debt. It's a hot topic, definitely in the States with um, Biden. I guess he's making a decision in July or August on, um, you know, I think it's around $10,000 per borrower that they're talking about um, allowing, uh, you know, they're going to abolish these uh, these payments, right? So um, the decision has been made, like I said, July or August. So I I figured we would do pros and cons of canceling the student debt. Now, okay. the, the, the other side of this, it is going to cost hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, so uh, anyways, I'll just leave that, leave it at that for now. And um, 
So pros and cons, and I'll let uh, Bill heads or tails. I have not won this flip in a long time. It's got to be heads. Got to be. It is heads. Yeah. <laughs> so do you want pro or cons? You know what? I'm going to take con on this one. Okay. And and I will go second. Oh. Okay. So Matt, pro abolishing um, student debt, a.k.a. loans, whatever you want to call them. So I have been – I'm not prepared for this. Um, as the, the viewers – and probably the listeners have observed. I'm home today with my two-year-old uh, Xander, uh, which is which is fun, uh, but uh, has thrown a, a, a curveball in a lot of my activities, including prepping for this. Not that I do that much prep, but um, so pros of canceling student debt. Uh, I will start by saying this is very hard for me to uh, to uh, take this side. I I was fortunate enough uh, to live at home for five years and uh, work very hard during the summers and. Uh, able to graduate uh, debt-free, and uh, so so it's a hard thing for me to understand. You know, particularly when people are racking up uh, debt to get a degree in German polka history. Um, but I think you know we have you know we have this 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 generation, whether it's the millennials uh, or or the boomers um, that uh, not the boomers, millennials or Gen Z that are coming out with all the student debt, and um, we need them to. And then we have the boomers who are trying to kind of get get their wealth out of the system. So, so there's this big kind of macro discussion around how are the boomers going to get their wealth out of the system? They need that next generation to do that. Um, and, and that there's a narrative around, well, the young people are putting their money in crypto and not in the stock market where the boomers are. Anyway, so but like I think we need that next generation to have, you know, if they're saddled by debt. Uh, that they have to pay down, uh, particularly in an era of inflation and you know costs inflating, um, they're going to be limited in terms of how they can contribute to that wealth transfer. They're going to be limited into how they uh, you know contribute to just the, the general economy. Uh, and I think when you're saddled with debt, you don't make other life decisions, right? You you may delay starting a family. You may delay. Um, you know, investing in a house or, you know, getting married or, you know, whatever your life path is. Um, and so I think, you know, making a decision to to give people a bit of that freedom uh, is a good thing. I think the, the cap is, is also good, right? There's lots of people who have made some kind of crazy decisions and have racked up, you know, six figures of debt. And, you know, I, I think this is good that we're not wiping every slate clean. Um, but uh, um, I think it's, I think it's good. I think it's going to drive some economic behavior. I think it's going to drive some, you know, some societal benefit, uh, when people are relieved of some of this. And I think there's a cap on it. So, uh, and I think it's, it's something that as policymakers, we have to be responsive to how the world is changing and the world has dramatically changed. I think the underlying question is the education system, but that's a different debate for another day. So that's why I think it's a good thing to cancel the student debt. All right. Bill. Well, um, that, that was good, man. And, and, you know, what's funny here is that I, I fundamentally agree with what you're saying. And, and I would say in general, the arguments for forgiving student debt, I, I completely agree with. I just think they're playing that this is being uh, applied incorrectly. So in, in general, the most the most common argument for forgiving student loans is is usually an appeal to uh, demand side economics. Because basically, which you, which you touched on, um, give, giving uh, money to, or in this case, not taking money from people who need it, it, it creates a stimulus to the local economy. 
you know, your spend factor is higher than the same money being held by someone who has a propensity to save, right? A dollar isn't a dollar, depends on how it's being used. Um, And so I I completely agree with that. But importantly, um, I I think that this is much more accurately applied, this whole concept to the case for not forgiving student loans. And the fundamental problem here is that there's an overt selection bias, right? In in the States, it's about 13% of the US um, uh, of the people in the U.S. carry federal student loan debt, which is what we're talking about, really. Um, there are all kinds of loans that could be forgiven, you know, specifically that benefit the poor, where you have a higher spending uh, multiplier, you know, the higher local economic stimulation versus propensity to save that I talked about before. There's no doubt that many students are poor, but why not have a real look at the data rather than picking people who took a very specific loan out? Um, you could have a family with kids where the parents take out a business loan and the, the business fails. They're poor, they're in debt. Wouldn't this be a good place to direct this uh, loan forgiveness? And and this is, of course, granting that we even forgive loans to begin with. Isn't it fair and it's simply fair just to not forgive loans in the first place? Because, you know, otherwise you're just making the people who opted not to take the burden and the risk of taking the loan now accountable for this. Does that seem fair? Remember that the whole premise here is that you're targeting the poor to get the most economic bang for your buck. So the question is, are, are college grads really the poorest part of our society? Even if they start out with low incomes, are they expected to stay in that situation? Well, of course not. You know, I, I just find that it's ironic that we're targeting those who will be the highest paid members of, of our society to be recipients of this particular type of aid. Now, another common argument is that um, forgiving student loans it affects Uh, minorities and women disproportionately in the positive direction and this is totally true but if we really care about that particular issue issue doesn't it make more sense to tackle the problem with a more effective method again the selection bias forces us to actually leave the people who who need it most right out of the equation so in summary i do want relief for the poorest among us i want a stimulated economy and I do want to bridge that uh, wealth gap that's emerged uh, from systemic barriers to minorities and women. And while there are many programs and ideas to achieve this that I would support, forgiving student loans, which is specifically the targeting of the well-off or the soon-to-be well-off, it's exactly the wrong approach. Thank you very much. One uh, one minor uh, addition that I thought of is it will buy the Democrats a whole bunch of votes in the midterms and may keep the Republicans from taking the majority. So that's another that's another pro. That's a yeah. practical. Uh, that, that's unfair to slip that in there at the end. Well, one of the articles I read was talking about just that. It's, it's Biden trying to uh, sort of sway the the needle slightly, right? 100%. Well, I I gotta say I'm uh, I'm gonna go con on this one. If I think if you incur the debt, you uh, you pay it off. Period. Right. So that's that's what I'm going with. Right on. That if 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 it was a free choice uh, on this debate, that's where I would have landed too. If you, yeah. If you yeah. rack if you rack up the debate, if you rack up the debts, you know you gotta you gotta pay it. Ideally, uh, it would it would be nice if it wasn't so expensive to go to school. I mean, to begin right. with. And uh, and that's I think the point is that that the education system, particularly obviously higher education. You know, it's it's one thing if you're going to get a professional degree, like a you know, to be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. But I think we're going to see quite a you know, with the advent of the internet and online learning and things like that. Um, you know, especially you know, everybody who did uh, you know went to Harvard during you know COVID and didn't get any flavor, but they paid the price. Like, right, education is going to change dramatically uh, as a result of a lot of this. It needs to. It needs yeah. To. So. Agreed. Yeah. You know, well, thank you. 
Thank you both. Thank you, Mark. Great topic. Great debate. Uh, great articles, Bill. Um, this is my son, Xander. Xander, can you wave to everybody watching? There we go. Hi, Xander. Xander, Xander's home with me today because daycare is sick. So to our listeners, as always, thank you for listening. Um, would love to hear from you on ways we can improve, uh, ways we can make better, stories we should feature. Always looking for new podcast guests. Uh, and until next week, everybody stay safe and have fun and uh, let's build a more functional world together.